Let us pray. Father God, as we come just now, we pray back to you and repeat the the words of one of the verses we've just sung. May the word of God enrich us in our hearts from hour to hour, that all may see we triumph only through his power. Lord, speak your word to us now so clearly. Show us the, the scope of what it is that you call us to in Jesus and change us, we pray. Amen. So far this autumn, we've been looking together at Paul's letter to Titus, a short letter where he uh, advises Uh, Titus to teach what he should teach the people in Crete. So time and time again, we've heard Paul's call to the Christians in Crete. They're to live good lives so that people around them won't have a bad word to say about the gospel or about Jesus, and that they'll actually be drawn to him because of the the quality of the, the Christian lives lived around them. When I was last with you a couple of weeks ago, that series came to an end, and we took the opportunity, if you remember, we we sort of finished with Titus halfway through our, our sermon, and we took a moment to pause and to reflect honestly on what we'd been learning. We thought about this, this teaching in the Bible that Christians are to be transformed, that they're to live eye-catching lives the kind of lives that people around them really notice and pay attention to. And we had to admit that this isn't working in our churches, at least not in a consistent way. We're not being changed in the ways that Paul is talking about. We're not being made good in the ways that he's calling us to. I've had a chance to think about that a little bit more since I preached that sermon a couple of weeks ago. And I want to balance what I said then about the, the, the small numbers of Christians who show this radically transformed life by drawing attention to individual people who clearly are living it out. There are people, and, and some are here this morning, and when I take a step back, And when I look at them and how they live, I can see that they are different people, entirely different than they would have been had they not encountered and been changed by Jesus Christ. So I said two weeks ago that it's not working. Today I want to say that, yes, it is working. But it's the exception rather than the rule. So this morning we begin by saying that truly transformed Christians do exist, but at the same time we admit that they're relatively thin on the ground. And that's a huge problem for the church. Because so long as it's only a small minority of of God's people who are really being changed, we're going to continue with the impression that this is an optional extra. We can all be Christians... And a small number of us will be changed. 
being transformed into the likeness of Christ is only for the, the really conscientious, the keeners. But it's not something for all of us. It's not something that all Christian people should expect or strive for. I want to challenge that thinking this morning, and I want to spend the time available to me by showing you from God's Word that transformation into the likeness of Jesus is right at the heart of what Christianity is all about. It's not an optional extra. It's a non-negotiable. Kirkpatrick Memorial, if it's to be a church of Jesus Christ, it must be a church where we're expecting to be changed and to become like Jesus. We ought to expect, in Paul's words in his letter to Titus, we ought to be expecting that, yes, God will make us good. I chose this morning's reading from Second Peter. If you have it open in front of you, uh, make it available to you there. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1. I chose it not because I want to preach this passage this morning, but because there's one astonishing claim in there, and the whole gist of it, Uh, supports what we're going to think about this morning. Look at verse 4. Peter tells this congregation that God's given them his goodness and his glory and his power. And then he says, why? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What an incredible thing to say. These things that God gives you, allow you to participate in the divine nature. It sounds almost blasphemous. Is Peter really telling these people that God intends them somehow to share in his nature? Or in other words, to become like God? Peter, we're Presbyterians. We we don't go for that sort of radical, rash teaching. We signed up for this thinking that God might make us a wee bit nicer, pleasant, people who fit well in our middle-class society. But becoming like God, that's a bit out of line, Peter. It's the sort of verse we would read it, and if we were preaching our way through Second Peter, we'd say, flip, you know, that's quite interesting, and move on and not engage it. It does look like what Peter's saying here is a bit out of line, but it's not as out of line as we might imagine. The great thinkers throughout the history of the church have agreed with Peter, and they've always understood this to be God's purpose for the church. Some of your favorite early theologians, I thought of the ones that people here at Kirkpatrick love, like Irenaeus of Lyon, for example. I know he's a favorite with many of you. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, I've seen your books on his, uh, sorry, his books on your shelves. These guys were, were teaching the church three or four centuries after Christ. But they had a word for salvation. And it's a really interesting one. They, they said that salvation is, is theosis. It's a Greek word, and it means becoming like God. So three or 400 AD, people thought that to be saved was to become like God. So they were happy with what Peter's teaching. Now, if all of that's a wee bit too pre-Reformation for our Presbyterian sensibilities, then let's listen for a moment to Calvin. He claimed that the purpose of the gospel is to render us conformable to God. 
and if we may so speak, to deify us. Now we're starting to be cornered in a wee bit here. When Calvin joins in with the theologians and with Peter, it sounds like the, the weight of church history and even is confirming the teaching of God's Word here. It is God's purpose, apparently, for God to make people like Him. Now, all of that sounds very exciting, but it would be poor preaching on my part if I was to take one small verse from Second Peter, um, if I was to take the opinion of a few theologians, even if they have credentials, and to make something of it, and to present it to you as, as something that should change your life. I think that would be pretty poor preaching on my part. Better by far would be to say, well, what if this was the teaching of the whole Bible from front to back? What if from page one to the last, the Bible confirmed this idea that we're thinking about? I want to take a few moments just now to suggest exactly that to you. That the teaching of God's Word from front to back is that God wants us to become like Him. Turn with me there to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we know for the account of God creating the world, God creating men and women. So we read about God creating order out of chaos, about God filling the void, the emptiness. And then out of all of creation, he chooses one species to take care of all of the rest. And he gives that role to to human beings. Look at chapter 1 there, verse 28. We see there, God gives us our job description. And it hasn't changed. It's still our job description. This is what we should be doing. God said, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves along the ground. God says to human beings, here, do this. This is what you guys should be doing. Look after this place. Do it for me as my representatives. God wants us to care for creation as he himself would do it. God wants us to act as he would act. And now this is where it gets really exciting. In order to allow us to do that, God made us in a special way. Look back to the previous verse, verse 27. We read that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you see what's going on here? God made us like him so that we could rule the world for him. Wow. This is this is this is important and life changing stuff. Now we know that this didn't didn't last, this ideal, these these men and women created in the perfect image of God. We know the story of the Bible, how very soon uh, that, that perfect scenario ended in tragedy. Human beings decided that they weren't happy with that role. They weren't happy to, to rule the world under God as God's representatives. They wanted to rule the world themselves in their own name without God. So Adam and Eve, we know, rebelled against God. And humanity 
this, this wonderful part of creation chosen to bear the image of God gave up that huge privilege. The image of God, theologians tell us, is still there in us, but it's broken and it's dirtied and it's sometimes almost invisible. So that's the story of the, the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of, of human history. And if, you, if we co- very, very quickly skim through it, what we discover is that, that things very quickly go downhill in Genesis. See if you read from chapter 1 of Genesis through to chapter 11, it's just like, whew, it's like a slide from perfection to, to the lowest of the low. But then in, verse, uh, in chapter 12, things change because it's at that point that God chooses Abraham. He chooses one man and his family, and he says, through you, I'm going to bless the world again. Through you, I'm going to, to recreate a community of people in whom the image of God is once more visible. Now, depending on how well you know the Old Testament, to a greater or lesser extent, you'll know how even that that promise was only ever partially fulfilled. We have learned about Abraham's family in some of our services here over the last few years. Do you remember learning about Abraham himself, about, about Isaac and Jacob, and now Joseph in our evening services? These guys are all flawed. The image of God, if it's in them, is still, still hidden. It's still broken. If you look at the history of God's people these, these early fathers of, the, of God's people failed. They then had leaders called judges. Eventually, they didn't do any better. Then they had a series of kings who repeatedly failed to lead God's people in the way that God wanted them to. There was one of the kings actually who stood out a wee bit, not because he was perfect, but because he, he had this wonderful capacity to love God, a wonderful life of God in him, and that was King David a man after God's own heart. And we, if you, you read the story of King David, you find that God makes a promise to him. God promises that a new king is going to come to rule humanity in the way that God had always intended. One day, the image of God was once more going to be perfectly visible in a human being. You know where we're going with this, don't you? Whenever we enter our Advent season in a few weeks' time, we're going to remember that David did have a son or an ancestor who ticked that box. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, son of David. You see, ever since Adam and Eve God had been looking for a human being in whom his image could once more be perfectly seen. God had been looking for someone whom he could entrust with his power. God was looking for somebody to do everything that Adam was supposed to do, to rule the world wisely, lovingly, with justice, And of course, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. I want you to think with me for a moment 
about Jesus' miracles. I wonder what you, you think Jesus' miracles are. Why did he do them? I think, I think a common enough, and probably the most common answer, is that Jesus did miracles to show us how powerful he was so that we would we'd believe in him, believe the things that he said. I wonder if there isn't a different way of thinking about the miracles of Jesus. They're, they're God's signs to tell us that finally the man with the perfect image of God is among them. For the first time ever, there's a human being to whom God can give all the power that he wants to, knowing that he will deal with that power exactly as God would. Folks, that, I think, is what Jesus' miracles teach us. Jesus demonstrated when he, remember he walked on the water? He, and he was able to also to calm the storm. He demonstrates that he has complete power over nature. Do you remember how he heals the sick? He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. He's using his powers to do exactly what God would do. The image of God is perfectly in him. Now, with that story of the Bible as a backdrop some of what we read in the New Testament really starts to make sense. And I want to look at a, a few verses just quickly. Whenever Paul tries to teach us about the importance of Jesus, one of his favorite ways of talking about Jesus is comparing him to Adam. He says, here's a second Adam. And he's making the point that for everything that Adam got wrong for all the ways in which he didn't live up to the job description that God gave him, Jesus got it right. Jesus is the new Adam, the one who shows us perfectly the image of God. And Paul goes on to teach actually quite a lot along those lines. Think of Colossians chapter 1, where he tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's saying that Jesus is the perfect human being because he does what human beings were always made to do, to be a reflection, to give an image of God. And again, I think this is where it gets almost to be unbearably exciting. Christians, the people who love Jesus Christ, who have his spirit in them, they're called to become like him. We're called to enter into this as well. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says that we've been chosen by God to be conformed into the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Did you get that? God wants us to look like Jesus. God wants us to look so much like Jesus that there's a family resemblance. That people who see us see us like a, a brother or a sister of Christ. He wants us to be conformed into the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. It's mind-blowing. Elsewhere, Paul says that we are being transformed into his likeness 
with ever-increasing glory. Folks, this is the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is not to get loads of people saved so that they don't end up in hell. The purpose of the gospel is to, to save us from hell, to make us into this. People who look like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He says, God became man to turn his creatures into his children. Not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of people. A few moments ago when we were starting out, I made the claim that this transformation, this becoming like Christ, it's not optional. It's not an optional part of a Christian's experience. It's non-negotiable. This is what it means to be in Christ. It's the point of the whole exercise. Can I remind you again of a couple of the quotes I used a couple of weeks ago from John Stott and from C.S. Lewis? John Stott, in his final, his final public address, the last time he got to address God's people, he said this, God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. And I shared with you as well C.S. Lewis's vision for the church. The church exists to produce little Christs. You know, that, that strikes fear into my heart. Because a lot of people outside of Kirkpatrick Memorial think that this is a great church just now. They think there are good things happening here. And, and there are, and we're grateful to God for them. But this is the purpose. To produce little Christs. I wonder if we're doing it. I wonder. There's a danger, after all we've been thinking about this morning, that I want to deal with briefly before I close. I've been talking about becoming like Christ here. I've been saying that that's the central thrust of, of what God wants for us. But I think there's a danger, and the danger is that we, we might not understand what Christ-likeness might look like in Belfast in 2007. We might think that it's some sort of super spiritual thing, some otherworldly experience Quite the opposite is true. As I'm more and more transformed into the likeness of Christ, I will be a kinder and a more selfish, no, a more selfless <laughs> Freudian slip. As I'm transformed into the likeness of Christ, I will be, I'll be kinder, and a more selfless husband to Claire. I'll be a more patient and a wiser dad to Patrick and to Sophie and to Ruby. As you're transformed into the likeness of Christ, there'll be a growing integrity in the way you handle yourself in your workplace. As you're transformed, it's going to change the way you think about your time and your money and every other good thing that God's given you. A pay rise, 
it won't be an immediate opportunity to go and rush out and buy some new luxury or see how you can raise your standard of living. A pay rise instead will act as a trigger. How can I bless others? Who could I give to or what place could I use God's blessing to me to bless others? As, as we're transformed into the likeness of Christ, we'll give up for once and for all trying to be good. We'll just put that away. That, that habit of a lifetime, that, that thing that's been defeating us for 40 or 50 or whatever number of years we've been living, we'll just put that away. And instead, we'll try and become the kind of people who actually are good and naturally do good things. No longer striving and struggling all the time, but welcoming in the life of Christ, that we'll be transformed and live naturally. Wonderfully vibrant, good lives. I want to finish for this morning. We've thought this morning about who we really are. We're men and women created in the image of God and, and being renewed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Many of you have seen the Disney film, The Lion King. Well, if you have kids you have, or if you're anywhere near kids, you maybe have had the chance to see it. It tells the story of Simba, a young lion cub. Uh, He was born to the ruler of the animal kingdom. And at one point, he witnesses his father's death, and he wrongly assumes that, that he had something to do with it. So he takes himself off. He, he can't bear anymore to be in community. He, he skulks off into the depths of the jungle. He spends his time there with a couple of wasters, a, a meerkat and a, a warthog. And he just settles in to his new life, his, his life there in the jungle. But all the time, even in those surroundings, there's something that nags away at his soul. And then one evening, he has a, a vision of his, his father speaking to him. He sees a, a face in the clouds. And his father says two very simple things to him. He says, remember who you are. And he says, you are more than you've become. I wonder, could there be a more appropriate message for the human race than this? Could there be a more appropriate message for us on this Remembrance Day early in the third millennium? Remember who you are. We're creatures of the Most High God with His image in us. It's there in each one of us. God has created us to rule this world under him, to live for him and for his glory. Where that image is broken, God wants to restore it. Remember who you are. You're more than you've become. Now that we've seen this, now that we have some, even a small glimpse of the huge dignity that God has given us. How can we ever 
How can we ever again settle for just being nice, being polite, pleasant people, as though that is what God has called us to? God has called us to become like Him. Let us pray. Father God, when we think when we think back on the the calling that you placed on human life, that we would walk in fellowship with you and that we would rule this earth under you. Lord, we see how far we've fallen. But Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, as he died for our sins on the cross, as he rose again to a new life, Lord, you you kill the old that is in us and you raise us to new life. You recreate us in the image of your Son. Lord, make it the passion of the remainder of our lives to be restored in the image of Jesus. Lord, if this, if this feels overwhelming, then come gently to us by your Spirit. Show us that all of this is couched in your love. And Lord, draw us onwards and make us more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.